It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now, here's today's special guest, Elijah Robertson. John chapter 4, verse 24 says that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to spend time together gazing into the truth of your word. And we ask that as we look into your truth that you have revealed to us, it would cause us to gaze upon Jesus Christ. It would cause us in a a fresh way to see the beauties and the glories and the infinite reality of our God. And Lord, and, and, and maybe it'll make us weak in our knees and at the same time lift us up with a calm assurance of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ and all that he is, all that he has done. And in a fresh way, we'll put our faith and our confidence and our hope and our rest in him. I thank you. You are so worthy and so good. You are our worship. It is through you that we worship in spirit and in truth. In your name I pray, Lord Jesus. You be exalted. Amen. All right, well, you may be seated. Uh, In John chapter 4, a rather familiar passage, I assume to most of us, uh, Jesus makes a pretty audacious claim. One that if you don't like to be pigeonholed, you're not going to desire. In fact, I think natural humanity kind of pushes back at this claim that Christ makes here in verse 24, that God is spirit and those who worship him. And then he puts this this qualifier on it, must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's pretty pigeonholed if you ask me. And yet... Christ makes this statement. And I'd like to look at that idea today. What does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? But what I'd like to do is I'd like to come at it from a vantage point of maybe taking our gaze and, and primarily trying to fix it upon God himself. What does that tell us about God? And of course, what does that mean then for us? Uh, we know what it says on face value but something I found in my own life that when I, when I first ask the question, when I begin to gaze upon him and ask, well, what, is, what does that mean when I look at God? It's had a huge transformational reality in my own life. And I think it's a place that we always ought to start. So we're going to take a look at that. We're going to ask the question, what does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth And I hope we'll end with saying Christ, Jesus, is what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. But I think the implications are so immense and wonderful uh, that we're looking at. So I have a few things that I'd really like to get out of this as we walk through it. Number one, I want to remind us as we gaze upon God, we're going to see that there is nothing arbitrary in our God. 
There's nothing that he just kind of thought up and decided, you know, let's do it that way. It is all based essentially on his nature and character. It is him that we find all reality and substance in and nothing else. And if we're looking at all the pieces, we'll see the pieces. We might apply the pieces. But if we're not focusing on the nature of God, if we're not looking directly at well, what is, how do we see this reality in him, we might miss the fact that there's nothing arbitrary. We might walk through our Christian life and begin to think, well, maybe, maybe there is something arbitrary. You know, just, God just demands this. He just says we must worship him this way. But I want to remind you and tell you that there is nothing arbitrary about God. And there's nothing arbitrary in the Christian life and in the Christian faith. You see, uh, one theologian said that every doctrine, every theology we hold dear in the Christian life finds its origin and its meaning and its substance in God himself. And I am here to tell you that is true. So number one, I hope that we begin to ponder and grasp maybe in a, a deeper way, in a new way, that there is nothing arbitrary of our God. He doesn't just make things up. I also want us to think about it, not necessarily as a defense, but to remind us. Again, if there's nothing arbitrary in God, then we can hold consistently and confidently to what he has commanded and demanded. The other day I was talking to a man, and uh, he's not a Christian, but he had no problem with the Christian faith. Have you ever run into those, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, well, yeah, yeah. But it's an interesting thing because when I talk to these people, they have this concept of a bigger God than we do. Isn't that interesting? Then they have this concept of a of greater being, a being that is so immense, so infinite, so behind all that is, that surely he could not be pigeonholed. He could not be constrained to the minute religions of this world. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, yes, including Christianity. They're too wise to do such a constraining thing to God. That, 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 how can you take God and, and he just has to be worshipped in this way? Don't you get that your God is, I thought that's what you Christians believed, he's infinite, right? Why, why would you constrain an infinite God? Surely he's big enough to encompass all the religions, all, and, and, but you're a second-hand religion as well. <laughs> These people often have spiritual experiences. And if we're not careful, we almost find ourselves going, well, he just wants it that way. That's just the way our God is. You know, it's like all of a sudden we're kind of small and we're making God small. And we're kind of embarrassed to say that, no, God demands that you worship him this way and no other way. I want to remind us that that is in no way the case. The case is that they don't know who God is. That the very substance they're appealing to, the very true reality of God they're appealing to, that God is infinite, he's not finite, he's not small, he can't be constrained. The very thing that they appeal to as evidence for saying that God should encompass all things is the very thing that defines that he will not. That he will not diminish himself to being worshipped in any other way. And in spirit and in truth. 
Number three, I pray that it would cause us to have a fresh awe and worship and glorying in and of our God because he is so glorious. He is so immense. He is so good. So let's take a look at that. What I'd like to do is start and ask the question, uh, what is the worship that God accepts? And then we'll talk about why this type of worship. If God only accepts this worship, why only this type of worship? And then we'll get to it here. Talk about the problem of fallen man and his worship of a holy God. And lastly, we'll talk about Christ, who is our spiritual worship. Well, as most of you know, in John chapter 4, it's the woman at the well where Jesus is, he's been traveling and he, his disciples leave him uh, to go get something and, and he's thirsty and he sees this woman, he asks for a drink and she's a Samaritan and you guys know the account, right? You know what happens in this account and they, they start off talking about some other things and then at one point when he confronts her about some sin in her life, she brings up, oh, I perceive you're a prophet and then she asks him that question. You know, we, our people say we ought to worship God on this mountain, and your, your people say we ought to worship him in Jerusalem, and, and how does that work? I don't know if she was trying to get him off the subject. The Bible doesn't tell us that. Maybe. Maybe this was a legitimate question. It was something they definitely were arguing about. Where is the proper place to worship? But Jesus answers with these Words, the words that we started with. I want to read that passage. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And here's, here's what I read. These are those defining, confining words that change everything. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Friends, if we're going to worship God, there's only one way. But I want to ask you why. Why this type of worship that God accepts? Well, let's define this idea of spirit and truth, and I think it will begin to become clear. And remember, today I want to focus our mindset on him, on God, his nature, not just what that means for me, but what does that tell me about God himself? Well, number one, spirit. When Jesus says this, it's not a capital S spirit. Let me say it simply. He's not talking about the third person of the Trinity which is what I think a lot of our minds would run to that, but that's not what he's talking about. In fact, most of you will look in your translation, and it's a small s 
instead of a capital S. And so it's referring to the inner man. It's referring to that nature, that spiritual nature that we have. And he's saying, you know, if you're going to worship God, you have to worship him from the inner man. That's the only type of worship that God accepts. That's one qualification. So it's spiritual, as in from your inner man. And maybe we could use this word and keep this word in your mind with sincerity. With sincerity. You guys remember in Mark when the Romans took Christ and they had Christ and they, were, they put on him a robe and they planted a crown of thorns on him. And the words that, that they, they begin to laud him, they begin to worship him, so to speak, right? In fact, if you begin to look at that passage, what do we note? We note that everything they did is what we do in a worship service. They did all the right stuff. What was wrong? There was no sincerity. It was mocking. It was not in spirit. It was not from their inner man. It was a sham. That's easy for us to see there. But what about in other instances? So, number one, Jesus said the qualification is that it must be in spirit. Number two, it must be in truth. And here, he is talking about that which accords with reality. That which actually is. It cannot be made up. You and I can't just, just kind of decide, you know, this works. I'm going to do this. This is what makes me feel right. I'm going to do it that way. Jesus says that type of worship is unacceptable and will be rejected by our God. So those are the two qualifications. And let me, let me put a qualifier on that. The idea of being in reality, let me just say it right now. It means that it accords with the nature of our God. My worship, your worship, what we, what we do when we come to, to offer to God, to think, give thanksgiving, to come and offer these spiritual sacrifices like Peter says, it has to be in two ways. Number one, it has to be with sincerity from the inner man. And there's more that we could say about that, but we'll leave it right there. And number two, it has to accord with the nature of God. It must be reality. It must accord with what actually is. Truth equals reality. But then Jesus goes on and he clarifies why this is the case. It is very interesting, isn't it? That he says the reason this is, is because this is who God is. Not God just kind of determining something up in heaven saying, yeah, we're gonna, I think spirit and truth is the right way they ought to worship me down there. Oh, no, 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 no. No. Jesus says, for God is spirit. That, that is the essence and the being of our God. It's a worship that is spiritual in nature, which accords with the essence of God. When we say the essence of God, we're talking about his, his being, what, his substance, what makes up God. And maybe the word substance is not a great word to use there, but it's, it's pretty hard to define. What is the essential reality of God? Does he have arms? Does he have eyes? Does he have feet? Is he like us? Does he have feathers like it says in the Psalms? What is the essential reality being of God? So that's number one, spirit. And that's what we find in the scriptures, that God is a spirit as Christ defines it. And if you begin to look at different passages, you'll find a generality of what a spirit is. Not, again, not capital S, not the third person of the Trinity, but as just a spirit. We look at Psalm 116, or, no, sorry, Psalm 116, Genesis 217, Psalm 1044, Ecclesiastes 12. John 29, 30, Numbers 
22, 16, Luke 24, 39, Numbers 14, 24, Hosea 4, 12, Proverbs 29, 11, we'll begin to get a generality that the idea of, the, of a spirit as a being is something that is fine, immaterial, so it, there's no matter necessarily to it, or not much. It's an immaterial substance, an active being that acts itself and other things. And I shouldn't say not much, because there's no material. All right, so it's it, oh, and this is important, because sometimes people think of spirit, they don't realize that it's an active being that acts itself and acts upon other things. How many bodies apart from a spirit can act itself? No, your body is nothing apart from your inner man, right? Your body will not act itself. So God is spirit, and we begin to try to define what does that mean. Here's a definition that uh, Charnock gives in his book on it. God has no corporal mixed. Uh, Sorry, corporeal mixture or of matter, not a visible substance, a bodily form. Uh, he is spirit, and look what he says here: not a bare spirit, a bare spiritual substance, but an understanding, willing spirit, a spirit that is holy, wise, good, and just. And then if we go over to Watson, Watson says God is an immaterial substance of pure, subtle, unmixed essence. Not this is so important. Not compounded of body and soul without all extension of parts. Now you might be going, what's the point of all that? Why are we wasting our time thinking about all that? I'm telling you, it has everything to do with everything you actually believe. Absolutely everything. I started out saying everything we believe is based on the being of God himself and his nature. How much do you think about who God is and what he is like? No, in the last week, seriously, how much have you thought about who God is and what he is like? Have we spent most of our time thinking about what does this mean to me? How does this affect me? How do I get through this? I mean, I know. I'm as guilty how much time you want freedom start thinking about God you want victory start thinking about God who he is and what he is like this has everything to do with what we believe as Christians it is his very nature that confines and defines what is So let's move on. Think about what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 15 through 16. Well, we'll just read 16 for sake of time. It says, speaking of God, who alone has immortality. Do you know that the immortality of God is based on the fact that he is spirit? Not just that he can be forever, but his very essence has to be in accord with immortality. You know, there's a reason that you and I aren't immortal. God is what we call true spiritual being. And if he is not true spirit, pure spirit, he cannot be immortal. It's an impossibility. Praise God our God is not mixed with matter. 
He's not mixed with uh, material substance. Paul says that he's immortal. He dwells in unapproachable light. Look at this. Whom no one has ever seen or can see. Do you know that if God can't be seen, the only reason he can't be seen is because he's pure spirit. In some way, you can always see matter. Or at least experience it. Oh, I can't see the air. You can experience it. In some way, material things are always seen. But the Bible says that God is unseen. And it says, whom no one has ever seen or can see. And then Paul ends with this, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Do you know the dominion of God is based on his being as well? And we'll talk about that a little bit more. Given time, we'll see how that all works out. We're we're not going to go, we're just going to touch the tip of the iceberg. Young people, get to know who God is. This is not above you. This will set a trajectory for your life. And it will give you a stability that I guarantee you will not have apart from it. I give you my word on that. So what distinguishes God as a spirit from angels and mankind? Well, there's two uh, primary things. And the first thing is this, that God is an uncreated spirit. We know angels are said to be spirits, but God is uncreated as a spirit. Uh, That means an angel, even though it is a spirit, can what? Be brought back into minutia. It can be brought back into non-being. God is an uncreated spirit. That means he was and is and always will be. God is uncreated. Look at what it says in Hebrews 12, 9. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Look what it says here. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? So God is the creator of all other spirits. And, and of course, Psalm 90, verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. So God is an uncreated spirit. He is uncreated. That defines him from human, humanity and from the angelic realm. Number two, another thing that de- uh, de- separates him, distinguishes him from other beings that he created that have spirits is that he is an immense or infinite spirit. Isn't that amazing? He has no bounds, no confines. Let me ask you, what form of matter can have no bounds? Absolutely none. All matter is caught in time and space and the sequential reality of it. But God, because of his very nature and being, is not confined, not defined, will not be confined by any sort of sequential reality. And that is amazing. But it's all based on one thing. Who he is. How about this? We all say, well, God is omnipresent. Why? Now, really, why? Because he has a bunch of, like, persons everywhere? No, because he is pure spirit. Absolutely no substance. And I know in our mind, when we try to think of no substance, we get this like gas kind of thing, probably like running around. No, 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 nothing. He is pure spirit. 
He can be everywhere, continually. How about this? His rule, his reign, his omnipotence. Do you realize it's based on the fact that he is spirit? How about this? How do you think God reigns? Oh, his angels. I bet you've had that concept. Well, his angels do, you know, like he's up in heaven. He's over all things. And his angels, no, 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 no. Isn't that wonderful? God can reign because he is absolutely everywhere in all places and at all times at one time. And he rules by himself. Not just some immense power from up here, kind of like, no, no, God is everything, everywhere, every time he is reigning and ruling. That's a terror for the wicked, isn't it? Where are they going to go? Where can they go? But it's a comfort to the Christian. Psalm 139.7, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free, flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. And the light, now surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. And it goes on, it tells us that, oh, it'll be like light. He is. He is. Look what it says in Jeremiah 24, 23, 34. Can, I, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Declare, uh, declares the Lord, do I not fill heaven and earth? That's all based on one reality. God is pure spirit. He didn't just make up, you need to worship me in spirit. You need to worship me in sincerity from the inner man. No, that's who he is. That's who he is. These are just two ways in which God in his essence, so his being is distinguished from other created things that he has given spirits. But, if we begin to study out God, begin to look at who he is, I guarantee you will find that, that they are his being, his nature, what he is like is wrapped up in the reality of who he is as a substance, as pure spirit. Think about it. Think about it. His wisdom. If God be infinite spirit and not tied to sequential space or time, of course he's omniscient. Of course he knows everything. Because he's not just outside you, he's in you, he's, 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 he is. Time, he's not held. He's omniscient. Because he is pure spirit. Again, you can look at Psalm 139. Look what it, let's read it, it's worth it. David says, O Lord... You have searched me and known me. You have known when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my paths and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And there's more. I, I'm, for sake of time, let's just, let's just keep moving. Oh, God, you're so worthy. Do you know your God? 
Do you know your God? Jesus didn't just say you must worship him in spirit and the truth just to say it. It's because that's who he is. And our worship must accord with that. How about the independence of God? Think about this. If God had a body, he would be made up of parts, right? The perfection of the deity would depend upon every part of his body then. Oops. That would be a problem. According to the number of those parts of the body, um, let's put it this way. If, if he had parts, are those parts infinite parts? Then each of them would be God on their own, their own right? If they were finite parts, then God, who's infinite, is made up of finite. It can't work. He would not be God. Do you see the treasure and the beauty of the fact that he's pure spirit? Everything, we, all of our comfort and hopes reside in the fact of his very being. He also couldn't be one. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. That would be a problem. That'd be a problem. Let's skip down to this. Uh, the Trinity. We could talk about goodness, justice, love, all, but let's just talk about the Trinity. Most of us as evangelicals affirm the Trinity, but I don't think we get how integral it is to everything we believe and hold dear. If God is not pure spirit, then three persons in one essence would not be uh, happening. He would be three parts. He would have parts. God, we made of parts again. We'd have a problem. But, but let's go beyond that. He declares, right, that he's one God. If he's material, how could he be one? He can't. But if he's pure spirit, he could be one essence, three persons. Because his essence is one. It's spirit. But this would have a far more fatal consequence. Look at this. If he's not Trinity, he would have had no fellowship from eternity past. And God, as a creative being, you know, would, would create things, right? This would mean that he created humanity for what? To fulfill a need he had. Oops. Oops. God wouldn't be God. Because he would have needed you and me. But if he's pure spirit and, has, and still can be one, but he can have perfect, sufficient fellowship within himself, he doesn't need anything, and yet he can create you and say, I have perfect, sufficient fellowship within myself, and I'm going to invite you into it. I want you in it, because I am a communicated being. But he has to be pure spirit to actually do that. Everything we believe begins to fall apart if he is not who he is, pure spirit. Let's, let's, let's just run here. Let's, yeah, let's really try to run. Okay, so that's number one. God is pure spirit. And it's his very being that dictates why we must worship him in spirit. 
Isn't that amazing? His very being determines that. It's not some arbitrary thing. Because he is infinite, he cannot just accept and encompass. It doesn't work like that. It must be in accordance with his being. So listen to what Charnock says here. And, and he says, if God were corporeal, that means having some sort of substance matter, he might be pleased with the victims of beasts and, and, and the beautiful magnificence of temples and the noise of music. But being a spirit, he cannot be gratified with carnal things. He demands something better and greater than all those. Isn't that amazing? Our God. What are you going to offer him? What are you going to build from him? What do you think about David built the temple? What is it going to matter? It cannot add to God. He is pure spirit. Ceremonies do not bring God glory. Your song does not bring God glory. What are you going to offer him? What sacrifice are you going to do? Yeah, yeah, what ministry are you going to do? We'll come back to that, but for sake of time, let's just run real quick. Uh, number two, Jesus said it has to align with truth. And again, we're talking about the nature of God. Remember, Charnock said that God is a pure spirit, but he's not just a, a bare spiritual substance, but he's a understanding, willing spirit. He is holy, wise, good, and just. So our worship has to accord with what he is like. Again, for sake of time, maybe we'll just run past that. But our worship has to be in spirit, and it needs to be in truth, the nature of God. Okay. Thus, the worship that God seeks is that which corresponds with his nature. Did you hear that? It corresponds with his nature. And why would he seek anything else, friends? Anything else would not only be less excellent, but it would be against the nature of God. It'd be against who he is. He can't change it. It's what it is. You and I are demanded, required. Think of this. You can try to worship him in uh, with truth, without sincerity. Isn't that what was happening in Isaiah? Look what happens there. They said, when you come, verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 12 to 13 says, when you come and appear before me, this is God speaking about them, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. So what were they doing? They were doing the things God called them to do and yet there was no sincerity, and God rejected it. How about sincerity, but without truth? Do you remember when Israel made that golden calf? What did they do? They made a golden calf, and they called it who? They called it Yahweh God. They gave it the proper name of God and said, this image is the guy who brought you out of Egypt. So they had, And then they, they began to worship. They had a sincerity. They tried to get a, a, a look attributed to the right God, but it was not in truth. Did God receive it? No, God rejected it. You cannot have one without the other. Now to finish up here, let me ask each of us a question. I kind of alluded to it earlier, but what song can you give to God? 
No, really. What act of service are you going to give to God that he's going to receive? What, what can you do? Can you go to Timbuktu and sacrifice your life, live with barely any clothes, uh, you know, have nothing on your feet, and just sacrifice and, and, and end up dying over there and it be something? No, it means nothing. It absolutely means nothing. You know, sometimes I think we walk in these doors and we just think we're going to come in here and we're going to do God a favor. You know, and then if I have, you know, a real passionate Sunday, I say, oh, God, really work today. I leave here really encouraged. and I don't think so. I don't think so. Why would God receive your song? Why would he receive your worship? It's just temporal actions and emotions that you give. Why would he? Sometimes I think that we, we really think that we're offering God something when we come in here. I, I think we really do. I think we really think that we're like adding to him. And then how about those times when we come in here and we're just so ungrateful? Because I'm not saying that we don't worship God. We do. That's the thing. That's the amazing thing is that he does receive it. But how many times do I come in here, I go to my spot, and then we sing that song again? And I just don't have it in me today. <laughs> come on, guys. Is your worship 100% spiritual, 100% in sincerity and purity? Is your worship always aligned with truth? How about the way we carry ourselves in our lives? No, seriously. Why do you think God would receive anything from you? Why do I think he'd receive anything from me? I don't care how loud you sing. I don't care how high you reach your hands. As long as we think that our song, let me put it this way, our worship, I don't just mean a song, our worship is what makes us pleasing to God, it will fall utterly and completely short. It will be rejected. Your song is not what makes you pleasing to God. But let me change it. Let me say it this way. We worship because we are pleasing to God. We don't worship to be pleasing to God. But when you and I begin to see who he is and we realize that we are pleasing to him, we worship. We sing. I may not even feel like it, but I'm singing it. Somehow it's a reality. Yes, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. The only worship that will be acceptable to God is if it's 100% pure and it's 100% truth, and I'm willing to make a large wager that you and I have never, ever, ever, ever worshipped him that way. Ever. Kind of like a slap in his face, isn't it? I'm going to add something to him. I'm going to do him a favor today.
I don't think so. But we come in here, and this is the beauty of it, guys. This is what it's, this is where it drives me. Like I said in the beginning, sometimes it makes me really wobbly, uh, wobbly need. When I begin to see him, but then this comes in right here. That's the beauty of Christ. He has so perfectly made us spiritually alive in him that we, that our worship is not what makes us pleasing to God, but because we are pleasing to God, we worship. In Jesus, when I came to Christ, when he found me in that barn, he did such a perfect work in me that even though I can't produce a perfect spirituality, I am so spiritually alive that I am always pleasing to God. I am so in him. He has produced such a perfect righteousness that he is righteous more. And when I sing, God accepts it because Jesus has done it. Jesus is our spiritual worship. God literally pleases himself in his son. And when you and I come and sing, and maybe we're struggling, maybe that Sunday we're fighting for it and going, I just don't feel it, but I choose. I'm going to sing. I'm going to try to worship you with this. It is pleasing to God for one reason alone. Because you know that you're pleasing in the son. And you know God has already received it. Isn't that our life? Isn't that our our glory of of Christianity, of what we are, that he has already received it because of his son? It's already taken care of. And I can wrestle, and I can struggle, and he's already received it as worship to him. He not only reveals the invisible God to us, which we didn't even talk about that, so that we can know him, but he is the truth of our worship. Oh, what a glorious assurance the saints have. Christ is our spiritual worship. He is the truth. So how do we worship in spirit and in truth? We worship by Christ, who because he is his, the very being and nature of God, he is our spiritual worship, and it's complete. I'm going to read a few verses, and we'll close. Hebrews 10, 19 to 22. It says, therefore, brothers, or family of God, listen to what it says here. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, here's why, by the blood of Jesus. He has so perfectly satisfied by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So how do we, how do, we do it? By faith. You and I, we know that he's already received it because of Christ, and we can worship Don't ever fall back into that other lie. I'm going to try to worship my best, and it's going to be part of my pleasing of him. That's a complete lie. It's a complete deception. It is anti-Christ. But when my confidence is on the one who made a way into the new and living way, I can come with assurance. I know what it's like to be plagued. Plagued in my mind. 
Because I know if you ever begin to examine the unholiness of everything we can offer to God, you'll know what I'm talking about. But then we gaze upon him, and he's enough. Last one, Hebrews chapter 2, 4 through 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We can offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable because of him. Who's your Christ? Have you gazed upon him? Have you gazed upon who God is so that your Christ becomes all the more immense and glorious? We can have a perfect confidence. Father, we thank you that even as we take some time to pray today, that our confidence is not us. It's not that I formulate the words right. It's not that I have a certain amount of passion. It's not that I felt a certain way when I leave. It's because of the reality and the sufficiency and the glory of Christ who is spirit, who is truth. He is our worship. And we glory in that. I pray that there would be a freedom, a freedom to know he's done it all to drive home today and just glory in the reality and the sufficiency of Christ. I thank you in your precious name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellersley campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.